get some lights on here. There we go. All right. Well, it's Christmas time. You guys ready for that? Wow, a few people are. The rest of you are either still sleeping or you're still trying to decide. You realize today is December 22nd, right? All right. Two days left for shopping. Yes, Christmas Eve Eve and Christmas Eve. So, yes, you are correct. Unless you want to shop Amazon and you might be past. Yeah, maybe you have one more shot. I don't know. So uh, hopefully you're ready because it's just around the corner. And this week, just to let you know, um, if you weren't uh, aware, I did a poll earlier this week to ask you some questions. What would you like or what kind of questions do you have for Christmas? And so we're going to be addressing those this morning. Uh, But first, just kind of want to bring you up to speed and where we're at. Uh, Jonah, we just finished up our series in Jonah. Um, I had a lot of people come and say, hey, man, I really appreciate going through Jonah. Uh, it was a good challenge as we think about outreach and where we're going next. And certainly, you're going to hear this more in the next couple of weeks, but 2020 is going to be a time for us to reach out. Uh, we always should be reaching out, but we're definitely going to be emphasizing it more in 2020. And so uh, you can be thinking about that as we uh, start into our series in, in 2020 on the book of Romans. So excited to do this. Um, Romans is, can be a little bit of an intimidating book at times because there is so much to cover. There's a lot of theology in Romans. Um, there's a lot of background that's good to know and a lot of concepts that can be difficult sometimes to just wrap our minds around. And so we'll be working through that. Uh, there are teachers out there that go through Romans in four years, and some try to do it in six months. We're going to kind of go a little more in the middle and try to do it all in one year. So there'll be times where it seems like we're, we're moving through it really quickly and times where we slow down a little bit. But that's the plan is to go through the book of Romans in 2020. And certainly it's going to prepare us as we think about going out and reaching out into our community. So so super excited about that and uh, where God's going to take it. But today, we're going to tackle these three questions. Okay, What should parents tell their children about Santa Claus? I I threw that question out there as kind of one of those, like, well, it might be a a good um, attention getter, and boom, right away, it just like went to the top of the polls. So uh, it kind of tied with the second question, uh, is December 25th, uh, 1 AD, Jesus' real birthday? And we're going to kind of tackle that one a little bit. And then, and then we get to the more spiritual question, finally. So number three, and we'll, we'll definitely stop and rest on this one today a little bit more, but was Mary really a virgin? And does it matter? So I want to take a look at those questions as we move forward um, and, and see where God takes us. So let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for who you are. Uh, we, we recognize the fact that we need you. Christmas is upon us. Um, For many of us, this is a time of of family, of celebration, of gifts, Christmas lights, trees, stockings, Santa. There's a lot of things that we do around this time of year, and many of them can be a distraction. And so we come to you, Father, asking this morning that you would help us focus on what it is you want to teach us today. We want this to be a time where we uh, are challenged to be in your word more. We want it to be a time where we are challenged to know you more, to love you more, uh, that when we leave these these doors, we will have gone through a great time of worship. 
And by worship, Father, we say, we, we sing these songs, we mean them from our hearts, we open your word, we trust it, and we trust you and what you have to say. Father, we, we confess we need you. As we approach your word today, we're looking for your help and your guidance to understand more of who you are because uh, we're, we, get, we get confused and we get lost in this world and we get lost at Christmas time. And so I pray and ask that you would help us to focus in on, on who you are and these next several minutes that we have together. May you receive the honor, praise, and glory as we really focus on you and your word and what it has to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what should parents tell their children about Santa Claus? First, I've got to ask you this question. What nationality is Santa Claus? Well, he's North Polish. <laughs> All right, so there's one really bad joke. So there you go, North Polish. Uh, there really are not very many good Santa jokes out there. That was about the, the cream of the crop right there, the top... Top shelf, all right. Um, I think for all of us who have uh, children or grandchildren or nieces and nephews or any children we've, we've dealt with, there might be some point in time where we sit down and we're on the couch or in a chair and, and a little one comes, maybe our son and daughter, and they're sitting on our, our leg, our knee, and they look up and they say, Mommy, Daddy, is Santa real? What do you say? And a lot of you are going to probably respond in a similar fashion to whatever your parents or whatever adult said to you, because that's the way you grew up. Well, now you're a follower of Christ, and you begin to ask maybe even more questions. Well, how does that come into play? Maybe you, I mean, you were following Christ, and you had somebody explain it to you in a different way. And so I guess there's probably, I could take that poll out here, what have you heard said, or what have you said? And there's probably a difference of opinion right here in this room. That would be my guess. And so we want to take and, and, and try to answer this question as best we can, understanding that there's probably going to be some background at in play for each one of us, and I understand a little bit. And, and by the end, what I want to do is really just kind of share a personal conviction I have, hopefully backed with a little bit of Scripture, and try to make sense of it as best we can, so that when you do have that question come up, what do you tell your kids? So without even really knowing it, um, I do kind of have a funny story for us. My oldest child was in kindergarten, and this, this came up. So Emily was was in kindergarten. She was asked to do this, uh, write out this paper or something, and, and the question was, what would you like to ask Santa for Christmas? And, and I didn't know this was really going on until we got the local newspaper, and the, we had, it was a small town, and they had their local newspaper, and we opened it up, and in the, the middle, it had like all the kindergartners and their questions, and they were like huge, like just huge, mapped out on this page. And as I'm looking through, boom, right there it says, what would you like for Santa? And this one particular child said, Dear Santa, I don't believe you exist. Emily Frank. I was like, that's my girl right there. Now, I did not coach her that way. Uh, And of course, being the oldest, she pretty much ruined it for all the other kids growing up uh, as they come onto the scene. 
So you might think, and I think sometimes when you approach this from church, people go, oh, well, I know where this is going. Pastor's going to tell us we shouldn't like Santa, we shouldn't believe in Santa, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or some of you are just waiting to see how I sweat under the lights as I deal with this question from a biblical perspective. So here we go. I want to talk about three different things when it comes to Santa. One, how do we embrace culture? Two, how do we deal with this truth tension? And then three, what is our personal conviction? when it comes to Santa. So this week I did quite a bit of reading on some of the background, and this is some of the things I found when it comes to Santa I wanted to share with you. Uh, The Gospel Coalition was helpful, so I took some of this from them. If you go back in time in 280 A.D. to about 343 A.D., you'll find a guy named Nicholas who later became known as St. Nicholas. He died around December 6th on 343 A.D., and there are all kinds of stories that have circulated about this particular person. In fact, here's some of them. He was reported to be a wonder worker who brought children back to life, destroyed pagan temples, and saved sailors from death at sea. And as an infant, get this, as an infant, he nursed only two days a week and fasted the other five days. Now that is pretty impressive right there. All right, Nicholas was also held as a defender of orthodoxy. Okay, one who would stand up for religion and, and truth from Scripture in this case. And so uh, later sources around 900 A.D. claim that he was in attendance at the Council of Nicaea. If you're not familiar with the Council of Nicaea, that's where uh, a group came together, and they were starting to get some heresy out there about who Jesus is. And some were saying Jesus is God, and some were saying Jesus is not God. And so they came together, and they needed to decide, are we going to say, yes, Jesus is God? And so the Council of Nicaea came together, and according to tradition, he was a staunch opponent of Arianism, which, by the way, I would be, and I think hopefully most of us, if not all of us here, would be uh, opposed to Arianism, which denies that Jesus is God. So he opposed that. Stories of his courage abound, and one claimed that Nicholas traveled to Nicaea, and upon arrival, promptly went over to Arius and slapped him in the face. So because he couldn't believe he would believe such a thing. So there's a little bit of the story of Santa Claus that you may not have heard before. As you might have guessed, Nicholas was also revered for being a generous gift giver, born into a wealthy family, inherited the fortune when his parents died, and apparently he gave uh, his vast fortune away. The most famous story involved three girls who were so destitute that they were going to be forced into a life of prostitution. But Nicholas threw three bags of gold through the window as dowries for the young women. And that's kind of where the story began with with Nicholas and giving gifts and all of that sort of thing. So then in honor of St. Nicholas, the gift giver, Christians began to celebrate December 6th, that was the day of his death, by giving presents. And the tradition developed over time for good boys and girls. St. Nicholas, excuse me, would come in his red bishop's robe um, and fill boots with gifts on the night of December 5th. For bad boys and girls, St. Nicholas was to be feared. There was something bad. And so that's, you can kind of see maybe how the story started and how it developed to where it is today. So when a child comes and says, what about Santa? Well, there is a story to back up St. Nicholas and Santa. And I think it's good to be able to go back and say, you know what, here's some, some things we can share. Now, of course, as time goes by and legends grow and myths grow, you've got all kinds of stories today about Santa. Now we've got a guy who lives up in the North Pole who's very jolly, very happy, somehow is able to travel the world, give 8 billion people presents, maybe less if they're just kids, 
And then you take the boys and girls, it's even, or good boys and girls, it's even less than that. But then you've got him, you know, having a sleigh pulled by reindeer, flying through the air. So all these things about our Santa today. What do you tell our kids? Well, I want to go through some passages here because I think this is helpful. John 17, 15 to 17, when it comes to embracing culture. We live in a culture today that talks about, promotes, has Santa all around us, right? So here's what uh, John records Jesus praying for his disciples. This is before Jesus goes to be sacrificed. And here's what he has to say, Jesus, I'm not praying that you, God the Father, take them, the disciples, out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He goes on, he says, they are not of this world, are they not of the world, just as I am not of the world, so sanctify them or make them holy by your truth, your word is truth. Now, John uses this word world in a couple different ways, and I want to point that out. Because when you go to 1 John, which he wrote, chapter 2, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But interestingly enough, some of you might recall John 3.16, For God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. That's kind of interesting when you start to think through, we're called to be in this world, but not of this world. We're called not to love this world. We're called to actually hate it, but God Himself loves the world. And what you have going on here is a couple different ideas of what world is. You have world being the physical place that we dwell, and ideas and philosophies and those types of things. And then you have world as in the people that are on the earth. And when God loves the world, He's talking about the people that are on the, world, on the earth. Not, not the dirt, not, the, not the, the water, the mountains, and those types of things, and not the ideas or the philosophies. He loves the people. But when you go to 1 John 2 and He says, do not love the world, He's talking about the stuff on the world and the ideas and the philosophies and those types of things. Don't love those. Love God's ideas and philosophies. And so then when he says in John 17, I'm praying that you take them, praying that you, uh, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. What he's praying is that they're going to be on this earth. And while they're on this earth, they're going to have to have a job. They're going to have to go out into the world and they're going to have to you know, talk to people, and they're going to have to fish, and they're going to have to feed themselves, and they have to clothe themselves, and they're going to have to be part of this, this world system, but they're not going to have to love the things of the world. And that's the distinction that Jesus is making here in John 17. So when it comes to culture, I think it's very clear for us that we live in a world, and we live in a culture of our day and age, Right? How weird would it be if I went to a thrift store and I found a lot of clothes from 500 years ago and I bought them all and started wearing them all the time? At first, you'd probably think, he's strange. If I did that for a couple months, you might think, he's lost his mind. Because I'm stepping outside of, of our culture. If I started talking in uh, 1600 English. 
And I started writing and actually changed the spelling of words and those types of things on the slides. You would probably think, he's lost his mind. Because we have a culture today in our world, and we go by that culture, but it doesn't mean we love it. It's one of the ways we communicate. It's one of the way, reasons we dress the way we dress. It's one of the reasons we shop at the stores that we shop at. It's one of the reasons we do the things we do in this world, in this culture, because it's what we, where we live. But we don't have to love it. So at my house, you'll see some stockings, and you might see some, some Santas here and there, and you're going to see some stories where there's Santa in the stories, because that's part of our culture. And my kids are going to grow up listening to it. They're going to hear it, and it's, it's just going to be part of their world too. I understand that. But then comes this idea of the truth tension. Colossians 3, 8 through 10 says this, But now put away all the following anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. So there you are. You're sitting there with your child, and their child's sitting there on your knee, and they're looking up to you, and they're asking the question, Dad, is Santa real? And now you're faced with answering that question. And you're asking yourself, if do I lie or do I tell them the truth? And I think that's the thing that we as Christians struggle with the most. What's make-believe in this case? Can we talk about unicorns? Right? You laugh, but isn't that a, a serious question as, you know, as you're raising kids? Like, how real is a unicorn? How real is the tooth fairy? My kids, it did not take them long to figure out tooth fairy was not real because our tooth fairy is pretty bad at remembering there's teeth out there to... Um, to put money under the pillow. And, and so, but, you know, those types of things are happening in our kids' lives, and it's part of the culture, and it's make-believe, and it's fun, but at what point does it cross the line? And that, for me, is where I share more of my personal conviction. So, this comes back, really, to, to an area where I draw a line uh, when it comes to telling the truth and that sort of thing. And my kids know, because I think I've sat down with almost all of them, if not the day's coming where it will. But, but I sit down with them and I say, of all the things you could do, I will show a lot of grace, I will show a lot of mercy, I'll try to show tenderness, I'll try to bite my tongue at certain things, all those types of things. But one area, and I'm sure most of them can quote on this, one area I will not show much grace is if you lie to me or you intentionally deceive me. Because I think that, at the heart of the issue, we, we tend to want to deceive and lie people, hide things, and that reveals our true heart when we're deceptive. And so we talk about that a lot. And this is where it gets difficult for me because I want to be honest with my children and, and be real with them and sincere with them. And so my personal conviction is simply this. When it comes to Santa Claus, we have fun with it. We enjoy Santa Claus. We'll take pictures with Santa Claus. I don't have a problem with that. But I will not defend Santa Claus. I just won't do it. That's my personal conviction. I'm not going to tell my kids, make up all kinds of different stories to try to convince them to believe in Santa Claus. I'm just not going to defend Santa. I'd much rather spend my time talking to them about Christ. 
So there's my personal conviction. You can judge that if you want to. I'll try not to judge your personal conviction. But that's kind of where I draw the line. And that's what I want to share with you. That, I think, is embracing the culture. Again, it's fun. Make-believe can be fun. But it will not come to the point of defending Santa. So there's the Santa question. How about the next one? Is December 25th, the year 1 AD, Jesus' real birthday? So a couple things I want to hit on. One is scriptural references, and then two, historical records. Matthew 2, 1 gives us a little bit of an idea of when all of this took place. When you read through the Bible, it doesn't give you dates. You notice that? Sometimes it'll give you years, like this happened at, you know, 400 years or during this king or something like that. So here it does tell us after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, excuse me, of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east came. Or in Luke, it records, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So we have a guy named Quirinius. We have a guy named King Herod. And we can take a look at the Bible and, and where some of the dates are there. And we can take a look at historical documents and try to put all together to come up with a time. And this is a, an estimate a possibility. You're going to see a, a timeline there. You might be able to make all those out, but you're going to see around 0 AD, um, at least 1 BC, and I've heard most people say around 4 BC is when King Herod died. That's looking at various, like I say, historical documents. What we do know is that Herod had children killed, baby boys killed, from two years old and younger when he found out that the Magi had deceived him. And so the thought there is, let's say Herod uh, did die in 1 BC, as this timeline puts it, then that would put Jesus' birth somewhere around 3 BC. Now, you can ask the question, I thought, right, our calendar was before Christ and some would say after Christ, or uh, on the day. I think the, the Latin term is actually the day of the Lord, uh, is the idea there. What about the zero? Why wasn't he born on zero? And the best uh, answer that I found is a guy named Dionysius is the, is the one who came up with our current calendar. And he, he's the one who decided that he would make this calendar to keep track of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what he did is he took all the resources that he had at the time, and he estimated the birth of Jesus to be, as, as we know it, 0001 A.D. And then that calendar was widely accepted in the Western world by 730, and it's the one we use today. So that one, really, I mean, he was, he was pretty accurate. And like I say, there's, there's even some variation from 1 B.C. To, to 4 B.C., 5, 6 B.C., some people put it as to when King Herod actually died. So we know that Jesus didn't, wasn't born after King Herod's death. And possibly one of the, um, the greatest arguments, at least that I found, is that the Roman historian Josephus, where we get a lot of historical data from, tells us that Herod died after a lunar eclipse. So he relates it to a lunar eclipse. And now, of course, we can go back and we can chart out when eclipses happen. And so he gives an account of events that happened between the eclipse and his death. And there is a lunar eclipse that took place there in Jerusalem on January 10th, 1 B.C. 
Then about 18, after, 18 days after that eclipse is when uh, King, or King Herod died. So that maybe puts it in a time frame that makes sense. And you could say Jesus was born somewhere around 1 to 3 B.C. There you go. Now, does it matter? Not really. And you may ask the question, what about the day? So in the region, here we go, uh, as far as December 25th, is it really December 25th? In the region, shepherds were staying at their fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. The question comes from this, when do shepherds go in the fields and keep sheep? And there's an idea that it's mainly from spring till fall, around October. So if there are shepherds keeping sheep in the fields, then Jesus had to be born in those months and not in the winter months. That's one possible argument to say that it might have been September. I think that timeline I gave you there actually has Jesus in September. Uh, Luke 1.5 says, In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. Zechariah was John the Baptist's dad. And this may be the best evidence we have of when Jesus was born as far as a month go. It says here he was a priest of Abijah's division. If you go back in the Old Testament, divisions, 24 divisions were made, and each of those divisions had a time of the year when they would go and serve in the temple. And he was of the eighth division, and so when his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he had the vision telling them that he was going to have a son. Verse 24 tells us after these days, so after he was at the temple, and he was doing uh, his duty there. It says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. Now, if you were to date back, you can actually see that as far as our calendar goes, that he would have been serving in the temple around late May to mid-June, somewhere in that time frame. If he comes home, and you take this as he, she conceived shortly after he comes home, then she would have conceived sometime in January why, or July, June, excuse me. Why is that significant? Significant because of this verse. Talking about Mary, consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. Mary became pregnant six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy. So, I'll spell it out this way, if Elizabeth becomes pregnant around June 1st, and Mary becomes pregnant six months later, December 1st, then Jesus is born somewhere around September 1st. So, that's, that's an idea, that's a theory. Now, that's all built on the idea that when Zechariah comes home, his wife gets pregnant shortly thereafter. If you say a month later, or two months later, or three months later, then of course it keeps working back further and further. Again, I think a question that comes up is this, does it matter? Again, no. So over time, throughout history, uh, we've decided on December 25th, as a time it began to be celebrated in the Roman Catholic Church, it's accepted as the day of Christmas, it was tied into, yes, to some other pagan holidays at the time, but now has become known as a day that we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's some history for you guys, but really where we want to get to is this question, and that is this, was Mary really a virgin, and does it matter? So I think this is where we want to land for a little bit here for a few minutes and see how important this idea that Mary gave birth to a son, Jesus Christ, who is both God 
in man. Luke 1, 26 to 34 answers the question, is Mary a virgin? So in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph, Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now in the Greek language, the word virgin is, is very much so, this is a virgin. Some will say, well, you could maybe make the exception here. Maybe it's more like a young woman, a young lady. Now, the reason I chose Luke's passage is because he makes it very clear as you move forward. Let's go on. Verse 28, the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Now that's a pretty intimidating greeting, but it was Mary's. And look at her response as we continue to go forward. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? Makes it pretty clear there. Was she a virgin? Yes. So why is that significant? And and honestly... um, People, like I say, have made the argument, no, she was just a young lady at the time. She really wasn't a virgin. Jesus was born just like anybody else. But for us who believe that Jesus is God, which takes us all the way back to what we talked about at the beginning, the Nicaea, uh, Council of Nicaea, where they talked about that in 325 A.D., we're still talking about it today. People are still denying that Jesus is God. But this is really important. This concept, this idea of her being a virgin is really important because she conceived as a human being with God, who is a spirit, and together they made Jesus. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will conceive, and you will have a son. The virgin birth confirms that Jesus is God and man. And that to us is really significant, and it goes all the way back to a time when 6,000 years ago, God created this incredible earth and universe and all that we see around us, and He put two individuals there in a garden, and He said, you guys can have access to anything here except one thing, this tree. And it didn't take them long. With the help of Satan, pretty soon they're looking at that tree and they're thinking, that looks like a really good fruit to eat. And they ate it. And when they did, sin came into the world. They disobeyed God. God's one command at that time. And when they disobeyed God, there was a, a break in the fellowship and the union of, of mankind with their Creator. And God, who, who loves His creation, and as we read in John 3.16, loves the world, looked down over His creation and said, I want to be reconciled with them. I, I hunger, I thirst to be reconciled with my creation. And so He came up with a plan. And that was sending His Son, Jesus Christ, who is both human and God, 
We have to have a human sacrifice for our sins, and there's a reason for it, because God cannot have anything to do with sin, and His wrath has to be poured out upon sin, and it had to be poured out upon human sin. And so Jesus Christ comes to this earth, He lives a perfect life, He goes to the cross, and as He hangs upon the cross, the wrath of God is poured out upon a human sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. And when He dies, He goes into a grave, and then three days later, He comes back to life, and as He comes back to life, He gives us the gospel message, and He says, here, if you believe in Me, you will have new life too, and your sins will be forgiven because of My sacrifice if you place your faith in Me. And that's how people today are reconciled. But if Jesus was not born God and man, it could not have happened. He had what it took to be our human sacrifice, and He had God and the deity of God to forgive us of our sins. And that was essential for us to be reconciled. God is not a liar. Isaiah 7.14 tells us that before Jesus was ever conceived that there was a Savior to come. And it tells us very specifically, Lord Himself will give you a sign. He's talking to King Ahaz here, and Ahaz was not listening to God, did not want anything to do with what God was telling him. He says, this is the sign for you and really to all Israel, I think. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. He will come and be with us. God in the flesh. So I have some dirt up here. I don't know if you've been looking at it or not, going, why does he have a jar up there? I want you to think about something. Back in the garden... God looked down upon the earth. There was no man at that time. And he took something like this, just dirt. Okay, this isn't anything fancy. There might be something living in it. I'm not really sure. (laughs) Nothing fancy, just dirt. And God, being the awesome God that he is, takes the dirt, and from it he's able to form and fashion a man from dirt. You can go back 6,000 years and take the greatest minds who have ever lived on the face of the earth, put them in a room, 25 of them, however many you want, and I guarantee you they will not be able to take dirt and turn it into a man. Right? And even if they begin to get to that point, take the dirt away from them and say, ah, now you've got to make your own dirt. Because God can make his own dirt, and then from that dirt, make a man. And then, don't forget this, it says when he created, he was lifeless, and then God breathed life into him. So not only was he able to take dirt and just form a man there, but then he was able to breathe life into him. Then he was thinking. Then he was breathing on his own. Then he had his personality. Then he was able to go out and name all the creatures on the face of the earth. Then he was able to have communion with God. He was able to talk with God, and he had a perfect union with God. God has the power to do such things. It's incredible how much power he has. And yet that same God looked down upon us with great love, and he said at some point in time, 
you know what? Those people are going to reject me, and I am going to humble myself and become dirt for them. Because that's what he reduced himself to. Think about this. You're walking outside, and you walk into a pile of red ants. You don't know it until all of a sudden you start to feel something on your legs. And you look down, and you have ants all around you. And so you back up, and you start swatting your legs, and you, you run away or walk away or whatever you're going to do. And, and you go back into the house, and you, you notice after some while you got some redness, and you know, those bites itch and so forth, and they're super annoying. But the next day, you see the farmer coming, and you see him. He's going to come. He's going to burn where those ants are at and all the weeds. And so you decide you want to go save those ants. But the only way you can save those ants is to become an ant so you can communicate to them. And somehow you are able to transform yourself, like the wild crats, into... No, it's good. You can transform yourself into an ant. Wouldn't that be crazy? If we could somehow make ourselves become an ant, it would not be as far of a change as God becoming man. We would not have degraded ourselves as much as God did when he became man. All-powerful God decides to one day come to the earth and become dirt. The virgin birth is really important for us to remember. And as we think about Christmas this year, yes, there's the culture. Yes, there's Santa. Yes, there's all those fun things out there. There's presents. We look forward to the, the presents under the Christmas tree and unwrapping them. We look forward to the meal together with family. We look forward to all of that. But don't forget the real meaning of Christmas is about Jesus Christ, that he came to this earth for you and for me. He didn't have to. We're certainly not worthy. But when he came, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead so he could make us worthy. And in him, we are worthy to be able to go and stand before God the Father with confidence, with boldness, and worship our Father because of the work of Jesus Christ. Not anything we've done, but because of everything that he's done. As we close, just a few things for you to think about and respond to. First question, does Christmas enhance your relationship with Jesus, or is it a distraction? And if it is a distraction, then what needs to change? Does all the hustle and bustle get in the way at times? Does the family get in the way at times? Does Santa, the presents, does the stress of watching your credit card bill go up get in the way? Or does Christmas enhance your relationship? Does it draw you closer to him? Are you spending time in his word? Are you reading about what he has done? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you saying thanks, you, thank you to him for what he has done? If that's not happening, what needs to change? And then number two, when you talk about your Christmas traditions, and I assume you do with coworkers, friends, family, whatever, do you leave room to present the gospel? This is an opportunity for us to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you leave 
opportunity to present the gospel when you're talking about your Christmas life and traditions. If, if not, think about ways you can, you can work the gospel into it. Why do you do some of the traditions you do? Does it have something to do with Christ coming to the earth, being your Lord and Savior, dying on the cross and rising from the dead? We have a Christmas Eve service coming up. You can invite them to that. Hey, on Christmas Eve, this is what we do to help prepare our hearts and minds for worshiping our Lord. Come to it. Christmas Eve. It's going to be over the ITC. It's going to be some singing Christmas songs and carols. We're going to have kids' time where we, we read a story together. We're going to read Scripture and read about Jesus Christ being born. It's going to be a great time. Come to that. Invite them to it. Invite them next year. You can say, hey, we're going to go through this book called Romans. It's about what, what God was doing 2,000 years ago on the earth and how it relates to us today. We have invite cards. You can give them and invite them to that. It's, it's an opportunity for you to share about what you're doing in your faith and how you're growing. Find ways to work the gospel into sharing about your traditions. So think about those two things. We'll give you a couple minutes here to reflect on your own. Pray. Talk to God. Maybe you just need to come to God and say, you know what, I haven't really humbled myself yet before you this season. I haven't recognized how incredible and amazing and powerful you are, that you being the awesome God you are, stepped down and became human for me. Maybe that's something you need to be thinking about. Whatever it is, take a couple minutes to respond. We've got some people that will pray with you up here. If you want to, you can come and pray as the service is closing. We're going to sing one more song in a time of worship as well as we think about our Lord and what he's done.